Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 18th episode of The Atlas Society Asks. Today, we are joined by Emily Eakins of Cato. I am so excited. I've been waiting for this for weeks. Uh, before I even get into introducing Emily, by now, guys, you know what to do, right? Just type your questions into the Q&A box on Zoom, or just type them in on the Facebook stream. Very easy. Please try to make them short. Um, but uh, Emily is um, an, an incredible scholar. She is a, a research fellow, director of polling at the Cato Institute. Uh, she recently published a much quoted national representative survey that found that 62% of Americans fear sharing their political views. Uh, she frequently shares her research on NPR, Fox, C-SPAN, to name a few. Um, her work has been cited in multiple publications, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, uh, and, and many others. Um, she has also published in-depth studies on free speech, regulation, and policing. So, Emily, welcome again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, I had been long aware of Emily's work, but uh, she really landed on my radar thanks to the chairman of uh, the Board of Trustees of the Atlas Society, Jay LaPere, who uh, is also a board member at Cato. And he uh, tipped me off on some uh, research that at the time Emily was uh, still working on, in which she um, measured uh, she found a way, and I want to dig into this, and we're also going to show some of the charts from, from her, her work. She was able to measure, with a series of questions, uh, people that were more motivated by compassion, that, that they just, uh, that compassion was a high value for them, and then others she was able to identify um, in terms of resentment of high achievers, and then uh, took a look at a couple of different um, you know, policies and statements. And in some cases, she found uh, that the two, the compassion and the resentment, they were kind of going in, in the same direction. But um, in others, she found that actually, for example, for questions like, uh, you know, is a system that allows billionaires to exist, is that immoral? And she found strikingly different um, attitudes uh, based on whether people were more motivated by compassion and whether they were more motivated um, from uh, resentment and envy. So um, you and I have talked about this, Emily, uh, in, in the past in terms of why you chose this area to study. And I think you mentioned that it was in part because there really wasn't a lot of good data on, in the field. That's right. Um, so there's this, um, this great clip of Margaret Thatcher that's very famous. I think um, your viewers could check it out on YouTube. It's a famous video clip of Margaret Thatcher where she's standing on the floor um, of Parliament. And this is where they do their, I think it's the infamous question hour that the British do where you have the opposing side and uh, the majority party and they get to like ask each other questions, especially you can ask questions of the Prime Minister, which Margaret Thatcher was at the time. And one of the MPs from the opposing party, the Labor Party, uh, was complaining about how under her leadership, inequality had, had increased. And she responded with all of these facts about how 
overall, the economy was doing much better and that even, even despite income inequality, the standard of living of the poor as well as the middle class and the rich had all risen. And she turns to him and she says, what I think you want is not to raise the standard of living of the poor, but you want the rich to be less rich. She so she accuses him that he's not about compassion for the poor, but really resentment of the rich. And this has been an ongoing kind of set of competing theories. Um, George Orwell has um, kind of wrote about this in his book, Road to Wigan Pier, where he spends a part of the book trying to analyze, you know, what are the motives of a socialist? Now, he himself was a self-described socialist, but he was trying to understand kind of what motivated, you know, all the other socialists to support their policies. Now, he seemed to be really motivated by um, compassion for people who were suffering, but he felt like a lot of his fellow socialists were a little bit more motivated by resentment of the successful, as opposed to wanting to lift people up that were marginalized and vulnerable. So that sets up where we came in with our study. We thought, well, why don't we test this? No one's testing this empirically. So what we did is we took some survey questions that psychologists have asked people. So nothing to do with politics, just psychology to ascertain how compassionate or empathetic are you? So for instance, on a scale of one to seven, how much would you agree that you suffer from other people's sorrows? And you ask a couple of questions like that. You take everyone's responses and just kind of put it to the side for a moment. Then we found another battery of questions that kind of, that gets at envy, particularly envy of kind of high achievers or successful people. So one of those questions would be, um, I think successful people need to be brought down a peg or two, even if they've done nothing wrong. So do you agree or disagree with that on say a scale of one to seven? You ask a couple of questions similar to that. So you take all the answers to those questions and then you see what types of people support, um, let's say raising taxes on the wealthy or who thinks being a billionaire is immoral or should not exist as Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders had said on the campaign trail. Actually, the day my sur the survey came out, Bernie Sanders even said that he thought billionaires shouldn't exist. And we even asked about that on the survey. So what we were able to find is you know, which of these, you know, let's have a contest. Which of these two theories, compassion or envy, better explain or predict why, what people think about billionaires and income inequality? And so here's what we found. Um, when it comes to attitudes towards billionaires, envy and resentment is far more predictive of attitudes towards billionaires than is compassion. Let's, let's, uh, I'm going to put that, uh, ask to have that screen put up so that people can take a look at it as she's talking to it because it's really striking. Yeah, so th these are some statistical tests that we ran to be able to test it um, using regression analysis. Um, yes, there we go. Um, yep. You see that the blue line is resentment of high achievers. You could call that envy. Um, and then the red line is compassion for the needy. So that's our compassion um, measure. And what you see is that blue line goes up and is steeper than the red line. In fact, the red line is even going downwards um, on that question about is it immoral for our system to allow billionaires? So what this means, so what, what does all this mean? Um, what it means is that if someone is telling you that they think billionaires are immoral and should not exist, 
what's their motive? Well, we don't know exactly, right? We're not, we can't psychoanalyze everybody. But what this does suggest is that more often than not, that attitude is more likely to be driven by envy rather than compassion. And I think that that is an important distinction to kind of for us to identify and to discuss because is that really a good motive for public policy? Probably not. Now that does not mean that support for other policies like raising taxes on, on the wealthy is just the result of envy. That one actually seems to be predicted by both set of emotions. Um, and so if someone says, you know, I want to raise taxes on so, you know, wealthy people, um, chances are it could be a little bit of both or it's one or it's the other, but compassion does play a role there. Um, I'm not sure if you're interested in showing that graph between capitalism and socialism. Um, if we have that. Yeah, let's see, uh, guys, do we have, uh, let's show the next slide that we had. I'm sure it's the right one. Um, so I'll just tell you a little bit yeah. as we're getting that to go. Um, so what about socialism? What about capitalism? Oh, so this is about raising tax rates. And this is what I said earlier, is that compassion and envy both predict support for raising taxes on people earning more than $200,000 a year, raising top marginal tax rates as um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had suggested in a media interview and it got a lot of attention, so we asked about that. And then just flat out, just wealth redistribution. The way the question was asked, do you support taking wealth from the rich and giving it to the poor? So that's different than income redistribution. Wealth redistribution is taking money that someone has saved um, and then taking that. Um, and you see here that compassion is more related to taxing income, particularly top rates of income, um, but really envy and resentment seems to be more related. Um, so I think that this just gives us, gives us a sense of the different emotions that are at work uh, when we're talking about these policy issues. Okay, we can stop the share now. Gremlins, gremlins. <laughs> um, well, I, I think it's really astounding. And, you know, um, I'm a huge Cato fan. I used to work at Cato uh, long before you were even there. You're probably still in school. Um, but what we do at the Atlas Society, we are a philosophy think tank. We focus a lot on um, morality and on values. And, uh, and that includes like calling out envy when it, uh, it, it may be at work, particularly with uh, regards to um, hatred of the successful, hatred of the rich. Um, and, you know, that was a huge theme in, in Ayn Rand's work. So you, you had, but we didn't have the slide for it, but you were going to mention something about attitudes so for socialism. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I think that's really important because people are talking a lot about socialism these days. In the past, socialism was a dirty word, um, but now it's kind of become in vogue again. Um, in, in part because of literally in vogue again <laughs> yes yeah Bernie Sanders is talking about it a lot saying why can't we be more like Sweden with his implication being that Sweden is socialist but the prime minister of Sweden or um, has said repeatedly they're not socialists it's like we're not socialists we are a free market economy please stop saying please stop describing us that way um, and he's right um, on economic freedom indices um, they have a great deal of economic freedom particularly when it comes to regulation um, setting up businesses, those sorts of things. 
Um, but getting back to how people think about socialism and capitalism, you know, what's going on there? Is this more about compassion, more about resentment, is it, or an envy, or is it both? Here's what we found. It might surprise you. We found that attitudes towards socialism was equally predicted by envy and also compassion. And what the way I interpret that data is to suggest that when someone says that they like socialism, they think that we should go in a socialist direction, um, perhaps because they, you know, they like what Bernie Sanders is saying, we can't really tell what the motive is. It could be that they're really compassionate for the vulnerable and the needy, and they feel like socialism is the way to help them, although many people could argue that it is not, that's their motive. Others might be driven more by resentment and envy. We don't know. And it could be that some, it's a mix of both. The data that we have can't really disentangle which it is. But when it comes towards hostility towards capitalism, that's where you see a big difference in which envy and resentment is, seems to be the primary predictor behind animosity towards capitalism, whereas compassion is far less related. So if you, if you hear someone that's saying, I want to take care of the poor, I think this government program is the way to do it, you know, chances are it's about compassion, but if they're talking about how much they dislike capitalism and the millionaires and the billionaires um, and talking about the problems of, of, of that nature, chances are envy has a little bit more to do with it. And I think, like I said earlier, it's worth us as a, as a society having a conversation about whether envy is the right motive um, to structure public policy. I, I think that's brilliant. And, uh, you know, the, the Atlas Society, it's, it sometimes maybe can seem like we're just kind of um, stuck on envy. And we have done a lot of videos, including um, humorous videos on envy as a STD, a socially transmitted disease, and recommending Atlas Shrugged as a prophylactic to protect your mind and your spirit against envy. Um, but, uh, but we also are very interested in uh, free speech and, um, and speech in general, uh, you know, speech as a conveyor of meaning. Um, and so we have two uh, Draw My Lives in, in the works that are going to be touching on those themes. One, my, my name is free speech, which is kind of uh, straightforward. But then another one on my name is postmodernism because oh. there's been sort of the whole, po and, and of course our senior scholar, Stephen Hicks, who uh, wrote Explaining Postmodernism and then also the introduction to our pocket guide to postmodernism. Both of those are available. So um, in relation to that, and I want to remind everybody, ask Emily questions. Remember, I know a lot of you are also interested in politics and you know elections. You have got the director of polling uh, from the Cato Institute. So what a uh, wonderful opportunity to get some inside scoops and just also, you know, a sense, a sixth sense since she's been doing this so long, what are some of the patterns that she may see? But on, with regards to speech and free speech, you did some very fascinating other uh, research recently, uh, including a national survey you conducted this past summer for uh, Cato entitled, uh, well, the article was entitled, 62% of Americans say they have political views they're afraid to share. That got a lot of attention, um, particularly because many have denied 
the existence of the silent majority. So were you, uh, how did you get interested in that area? And also were, what, you know, were there any surprises in there for you? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, originally that question that we asked, um, came from my reading a book called End of Discussion by Mary Catherine Ham and Guy Benson. And I actually sat down with Mary Catherine for lunch one day. I think I talked with Guy too, they were both very helpful. And just kind of asked them, you know, what do you think are the issues that you're most, most concerned about as it, as it relates to open discourse and speech? And, you know, Mary Catherine really, you know, pointed something out to me. She said she was really concerned about how an environment in which um, people are getting fired from their jobs um, for, for their political ideas, that could result in people self-censoring. And back then she saw that she was observing this before most people were paying attention. She first got worried about this when the CEO, former CEO of Mozilla Firefox, Brendan Ike, had been removed in, I think it was 2012, because of a political donation he had made in 2008 um, in opposition to same-sex marriage in California. Um, and I think a lot of people would disagree with his political view, um, cause he was opposing same sex marriage in California and she, she too opposed his view and Guy Benson is, you know, also opposed as well, but they were concerned that he could have been fired from his job for a political view that the president himself had taken just a couple of years earlier. Um, and so that led them to fear that if people are gonna you know, see others get fired for their political views, maybe that means they're just not gonna participate as much. Maybe they're not gonna say as much. And so that led to us asking this question. We asked it a couple of years ago, and we asked it again this summer, and we've seen an increase. Now 62% of Americans say they have political views they're afraid to share because of the political climate these days. And we've seen a particular shift among people who identify as liberal or very liberal, liberal becoming more afraid to share what they really think. Hmm. Um, so what? Uh, so I think what you're saying is that uh, part of this cancel culture um, is is what's responsible for seeing such a such a high number. Um, what What's the political and cultural impact of of so much of the population self censoring themselves? Yes. Well, I think people will say, "Well, look." Your, your vote, you know, your, your vote, which is part of the most important part of a democracy, um, is secret. It's a private ballot. But I would argue that the democratic process depends on a lot more than just who you vote for on election day. It's about being able to organize each other, with each other to be able to support causes and candidates, to give um, donations to candidates and causes that you agree with, to be able to talk about it and try to convince one another. And you know, sometimes you're gonna be wrong. And sometimes the other guy's going to be wrong, right? But you can't have that opportunity of exchanging ideas unless you feel like you can talk about things without a really high transaction cost. One, you know, losing friends or two, getting fired from your job. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there aren't certain ideas that people would say, you know, that's beyond the pale. That should be marginalized. But what's happening now is many, many people are saying, you know, rather innocuous and mundane things are finding themselves getting in trouble. Um, take, for instance, this data analyst, David Shore, who worked for a progressive um, polling and data analytics firm. So this is for the, they work for the Democrats. And he was concerned when the protests after the death of George Floyd had gotten underway, that if they, had be, if they became violent, research showed that 
violent protests tended to turn voters away from the Democratic Party, but peaceful protests enhanced the numbers for the Democratic Party. And so he tweeted this out. It was research from Princeton University that found peaceful protests were more effective than violent protests. And he was fired for tweeting that out. He didn't say anything um, offensive or inflammatory. He didn't use an ad hominem attack. And you might ask yourself, well, why was he fired for that? Well, the reason that was that was widely believed is that many people felt like he was wrong to tell pro protesters the manner in which they should express themselves. And even though he's just trying to give, in his view, helpful advice, because he sees himself on the same side, um, so he gets fired. Um, there was a, a young woman who had been admitted to Marquette University, and she had tweeted out a, or not tweeted, she was on Instagram and posted a picture of herself with like a Donald Trump sign. Now, you know, say what you want about Donald Trump, um, but what was surprising is that she received a call from the admissions office saying that her admittance, which had already had, had happened, she paid money, she'd been, you know, registered for her classes, had like enrolled and everything, her admittance was now in jeopardy because of that picture. Um, that's, you know, her support for Donald Trump. And I think a lot of people say, you know, even if you don't agree with what these people are saying, that it seems a little bit beyond what is reasonable to fire people from their jobs, kick them out of universities. Now, to be fair, she was not denied admittance. I think after there was a lot of media criticism towards Marquette, um, they, they basically told her that she was still um, admitted to the school. But these types of things are drawing the boundary lines um, where you know, rank and file people, they just want to live their lives. They want to be happy. <laughs> they don't want to be ostracized and humiliated and lose their jobs. So what they notice, it only takes a couple of people. They see what got people in trouble and they say, okay, those are the boundary lines. And so then they steer far clear from the boundary. But right now that boundary is shrinking and shrinking to the point where people just aren't talking. And that is going to be a problem for the democratic process because we have some really difficult issues that we have to sort out and we can't actually fix them and deal with them unless people are able to participate and to talk. Yeah, um, I mean, I think in the case that you just uh, shared with regards to Shore, uh, if that is not being allowed to be said, um, that is actually information that po possibly people on the left <laughs> might want to keep in mind if they, you know, don't want uh, to have um, situations that are going to be counterproductive to their political agenda. But uh, if it's, you know, considered beyond the pale in terms of what people can speak on, at, you know, just they're in, they're in their own echo chamber. So. Um, all right, well, and I want to get to some of these questions, and I think I need to also plug in my laptop. Uh, but uh, you had some research uh, in 2017, also around free speech um, in the United States, and you found that 71% believe that political correctness has silenced people. Um, but that there was also, interestingly, people on both uh, the Republican and Democratic side who wanted to regulate um, speech. Is that, can you tell us a little bit about that? That's right. Yes. So what was really interesting about this poll is that I purposely tried to get at ideas that are offensive to the political left and the political right, because I have been observing this type of, you could call it cancel culture, 
on both sides of the political spectrum. Now, I think it is happening more on the political left right now, or it's happening more from that side, but that does not mean that the political right doesn't also have um, the propensity to do this in certain situations. And if you believe in you know, free expression and political thought, then it matters to really kind of get a comprehensive view and not just point fingers, you know, say, no, this is a general problem. It's not just one side or the other. Um, so some of the results we found, it's been a while since I've collected the data, but I have to look at it. Um, but we found yeah. 50% of Democrats wanted to, thought someone should be fired if they posted something to Facebook that was offensive. Is that right? I think that's... Yeah, yeah, I've got them. I've got them pulled up um, and I can run through some of them um, and you can tell me what some of the most surprising were. And by the way, everybody, if my computer dies, Emily's in charge, okay, and she'll be taking your questions. So, um, but anyway, so you, you found 51% of strong liberals said it's morally acceptable, acceptable to punch Nazis. 53% uh, <laughs> of Republicans favor stripping U.S. citizenship from people who burn the American flag. 51% of Democrats support a law that requires Americans to use transgender people's preferred pronouns, okay? Right, um, I mean, so that doesn't mean, you know, some people could say, well, you want to use, you should choose to use those pronouns because you want to be respectful. This is about a law. This is about using the government to enforce that etiquette on individuals. So just to make, make that distinction clear. Yes, 51%, a slim majority of Democrats would support a law requiring right. to use those pronouns. It reminds me of, um, you know, our graphic novel anthem in which uh, a, 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 the word I has been abolished. So I, I really do believe that controls on language is, is control on thought, you know, and if you are limiting to politically correct terms, in terms of how you are even discussing things, then you are, from a policy standpoint, you know, you're much less likely to find solutions. And I, I wrote about this recently in um, I, I had an article called Vagrants in Our Driveway, A Teachable Moment. Uh, and I talked about how, you know, the politically correct term, we used to have like a very uh, robust vocabulary, some of them, you know, kind of maybe offensive terms when you talked about derelicts or bums or vagrants or, you know, homeless, but now it's just, it's, it's homeless. And uh, so you were thinking about this problem in terms of, uh, is it a housing shortage, you know? I mean, so I think that we, we are also limiting our ability to even think about how to um, solve some of these problems. So some of the other ones that you found, uh, wow, 47% of Republicans favor bans on building new mosques, 58% of Democrats say employers should punish employees for offensive Facebook posts, 65% of Republicans say NFL players should be fired if they refuse to stand for the national anthem. That's pretty. What, what's, what was the one that surprised you the most? Oh, dear. I feel like they all surprised me. I think that um, right now, the one that's become very salient is the 58% of Democrats say employees should, um, should be punished for offensive Facebook posts, because I think that that is really a debate we're having in society right now about the role of social media and how that affects our ability to communicate with one another. Um, so there was a teacher that had tweeted something out about how he, he said, Donald Trump is our president. 
and he was saying it kind of in this like kind of slam his foot down almost but that was the word those were the words that he used he's like i'm not gonna lie about it anymore trump is our president something like that and mm -hmm. then um he was fired shortly thereafter and of course the school is a school teacher high school school teacher um, and of course they said because it's a personnel matter they can't comment on if that was the reason but that was the reason he felt that he was fired um and so we don't know um but there have been so many people getting in trouble for things that they've posted to facebook there was this um uh i think a palestinian immigrant um had started a catering business in minnesota and it was thriving and doing really well and he felt like he was living the american dream um and then it came to light that his daughter when she was a couple of years ago when she was a teenager had tweeted out really offensive terrible things so now she's an adult but now his business the lease for his building where he runs his business was was revoked and he had all, like tons of his contracts he's a caterer were canceled and this seems perhaps disproportionate and unreasonable um, one it wasn't him he's not the one who did it it was his daughter she was also technically a child when she did it and you could say she should never have said that and i think he would agree um, but this was in Yasha Monk's um, Atlantic story, where he goes through all these innocent people that have been canceled. Um, and a lot of it has to do with social media use. There was a pastor in Alabama who, quote, liked, you know, on Facebook, you can go in and like a post. He liked some posts from Turning Point USA, and he had his church's lease rescinded. Um, I, I forget by whom, but somehow it was rescinded. And again, it was for, it was for his social media activity. So we're really in the midst of a major conflict about what, how we're going to treat each other based on our social media usage. In the past, some of these ideas were just kind of private. People didn't know about it. But now it's public, and you can use social media platforms to, to mobilize a mob of people who are angry and can all contact your employer. And it gives the wrong impression, but it gives the impression to the employer that a majority of people are against this person and then they can feel compelled to act, act and to punish them even though it was just you know 20 angry people on twitter not a majority of you know their customers or population in that in that town or city so that's a major issue i think we're dealing with right now yes well if a bunch of angry people went to my bosses um at the atlas society and told them to fire me i think they would say well she's probably doing a good job she's making people mad um Okay, uh, good question here, because I want to get to some of these uh, audience questions, and I'm going to go and um, grab a charger as I'm letting you address it. But I thought this one was sort of interesting from Vicki. She said, could you speak on the impact of uh, this regulation of speech um, and the country as it is reacting to COVID? Because we've heard a lot about social media censorship with regards to people saying, you know, questioning some of some of the data or some of the advice that um, that the CDC or whatever constantly changing has put out there. Well, if I may, I'm going to answer this by like in kind of a roundabout way to get to my answer to that question. It's a very good question. Something that really um, surprised me in the data set and the data that we collected um, about political expression was that we asked people if they were concerned that if their political views became known, if um, they were uh, worried about getting fired or missing out on career opportunities. About a third of all Americans say yes, they are afraid that they're gonna get fired 
or miss out on job opportunities if people found out their political views. Now remember, most campaign contributions um, are public, are public information. So someone could find out if you donated to someone. So that's how it could be, quote, discovered. Um, but what really stood out was if you look at um, this question by partisan groups, um, among Republicans who had um, received high school diplomas, about 30% or so, were worried that their political views could get them fired. But then once you go to once Republicans go to college, it rose to 40%. And then once you look at uh, Republicans that had gone to graduate school, it rose to 60%. 60% of Republicans with postgrad degrees, you know, think about business school, law school, professors, medical school, and so forth. 60% felt like they could get fired if their political views became known. So why am I telling you this? I think it's telling us something about how Republicans um, kind of assess how their views are, um, are interpreted or accepted by um, people in the university setting or in jobs and industries that predominantly hire people with college degrees. So what I think this, what, what's happening is that Republicans go to college and then they go to grad school and then they discover that the views that they have are so unacceptable to their political opponents that they would be severely economically punished if they were ever discovered. And then I also think it's likely the case that the industries that hire, you know, like lawyers, doctors, um, you know, large tech companies in Silicon Valley, you know, those types of companies that are hiring people with postgraduate degrees um, are, they tend to be fairly homogeneously left of center. And so Republicans are discovering that their ideas can really hurt them economically. So what I think this is doing is that it is undermining the faith and trust that people have, particularly Republicans have in universities to be, uh, for being neutral and impartial arbiters um, and conveyors of scientific information and data. And so here comes a pandemic where we really are reliant on people who know more than us to tell us about how this is transmitted, how contagious this is, how dangerous this is, and we're reliant on universities and, science and scientists to tell us these things. And unfortunately, people feel like the university has become so politicized that many people do not trust them to be fair and accurate with how they discuss the data. And this really undermines support for people kind of getting around the same, you know, kind of reaching consensus about how we should handle the pandemic. So, um, talking about, uh, and sorry about that, everybody, <laughs> cutting it too close, but I figured it out. Um, talking about politics a little bit, um, because, you know, polling is your field. And um, people are, have you noticed over the course of your profession that people have become more mistrustful of pollsters? I mean, just how has the culture shifted in the course of your professional, you know, observation of the polling um, industry? Right. Well, just like I was saying, there's been a declining trust in universities. We're seeing declining trust kind of across institutions, you know, declining trust in the media, declining trust in the government. And yes, declining trust in pollsters, and a lot of that has to do with the, you know, the, the, the wrong predictions of 2016. 
Um, but that was a hard, that was a difficult election. I think you have to give some pollsters credit there because there's a couple of kind of wild cards. The first is that, um, you know, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. And so when pollsters are doing the work that they're doing, they're trying to look at, you know, the national sample, but also there's the electoral college that kind of affects things, right? But it's true that at the state level, state level polls really did miss the mark. And part of that has to do with libertarian candidate Gary Johnson being on the ballot. He got, I think, what was it, 7 million votes? Uh, I mean, quadrupled the you know, third party vote share of the past. And when you have that many people voting third party, it creates a lot of uncertainty. Pollsters you know, don't really know how to deal with that very well because it was so new uh, and, and kind of unexpected. So there was just a lot more uncertainty. But then also, I think that likely Hillary Clinton just wasn't that popular of a candidate and she just did not inspire her base to turn out the way that Barack Obama did. Um, and a lot of those polls were assuming that Hillary Clinton would drive out the same, you know, turn out the same composition of voters that President Obama did. Well, the truth is she didn't. She just didn't get them to the polls. Um, and so for, you know, those reasons and a couple of others, the polls just misfired that year um, at the state level. And so this year, I think they're trying to be a lot more careful, but who knows? A lot of people are concerned that um, voters aren't being honest with pollsters and who they're going to vote for, um, given the toxic environment right now. And so some people feel like the polls have inflated support for uh, Joe Biden because people are afraid to admit to voting for Trump. But I, I actually have a little bit of a, a criticism of that in that a lot of these polls are conducted online. Um, where you're not having to tell someone who you're going to vote for. You're just clicking a button. So I'm a little bit less certain how much people are, if they're lying to pollsters. I don't know why you would lie if you're just lying to the computer. It's possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that is a good point. Uh, there, there might be something a little, you know, kind of nihilistic or whatever. People get angry at institutions and uh, they feel kind of powerless and they just want to you know, just make some, make some mischief. But um, so when you look at what are the polls uh, politically that, that you look at that you think are a little bit more, um, I don't know, uh, that you have more confidence in and what do you think about, you know, how much confidence should we have in uh, the current uh, presidential polling? Well, so I really like 538's rating of the pollsters. Um, Nate Silver is the editor-in-chief over there, and I have a lot of respect for him uh, as being kind of an impartial um, user of data. And he, he and his group have gone through and rated pollsters based on how well their polling actually predicted election outcomes. So it's kind of, there's really a test for pollsters, right? At the end of the day, there's a way to have a test and see were you right or were you, were you not right? And so they're able to estimate, you know, some pollsters have what they call um, a house effect, like a democratic house effect. Others might have a Republican house effect. Um, and so what they do is they, you know, rate how good the pollster is. They tell you if there's like a little bit of a bias one way or the other. Um, but I think the right way to look at polls is to not look at just one poll about the horse race between Trump and Biden. But I think it's better to look at a set of polls, particularly over the course of a week. If you've got hmm. several polls showing a change in who's winning, is it Biden or is, I mean, Biden's been ahead like the whole time. But if there's going to be a narrowing of the gap, um, you really want to get a couple of polls over the course of a week before you say, okay, you know, 
there's been a change between Trump and Biden. Okay, uh, we've got another question here. Um, today, the Kentucky Attorney General announced charges against one officer in the Breonna Taylor case, uh, and I believe you have done some polling on policing. Mm -hmm. Have you been? Have you seen big shifts in this past year uh, on attitudes towards the police, or is it just that a particular group has gotten more vocal? Um, well, we definitely are seeing changes in attitudes towards the police as it was in regards to this question about when these things happen with the police that, you know, seem to have been um, like, it seems as though the police have done something wrong. Is this just a couple of bad apples out there or is this reflective of a systemic problem? And so a couple of years ago when pollsters started asking that question, most people said, you know, these are just a couple of bad apples out there that are doing the wrong thing, but they're not, it, it's not like a systemic problem in which, you know, we could say that police aren't being held to the proper standard in their training and in their behavior so that we avoid this kind of behavior from happening often. So that's flipped. Now we have most Americans who believe that the police have a systemic problem particularly as it comes to their treatment of black Americans in the country. So that has shifted. But despite that, most Americans like the police, they have favorable attitudes towards them and they don't want to defund the police as many activists have been you know, suggesting that we should. Um, and so I think people are making kind of a nuance, they're kind of reaching a, a nuanced conclusion in which they like the police, they agree about what they want the police to do, but they are, they, they worry that the police are not being trained properly. Um, so we found this in our polling. We feel, or we found that people feel like they're not being taught how to de-escalate situations very well, and that they're worried that they're not being held accountable. And so for that reason, we actually asked about some reforms that several of the scholars at the Cato Institute where I work, um, reforms that they believe could really help bring accountability, more accountability into policing. So, um, for instance, a lot of police unions actually get to decide as part of their police contracts how you hold officers accountable when something goes wrong. Um, a lot of people worry, is that really the best way to hold police officers accountable? If the union is the one deciding how you discipline an officer who has behaved improperly? Well, we found most people oppose that. They don't think unions should get a say in how you hold officers accountable. And we also found support for a policy of ending a policy or practice called qualified immunity. Um, what that would do is to remove a protection that police officers can use by saying they did not know they had broken the law um, if misconduct occurs um, to avoid lawsuits. And so most Americans think that if a police officer engages in misconduct, they should be held accountable for that misconduct, even if the officer was unaware at the time that they were breaking the law. So we asked this a couple of different ways, kind of the same cons consistent result, you know, 60 to 70% kind of agreed with these types of changes. Um, so there really is a lot of support, I think, for trying to inject more accountability into policing in the United States. So Emily, when you look forward, when you look to 2021, you look to 2022, um, what are some of the areas uh, that are really of interest to you 
I mean, because a lot of your work has been very groundbreaking. For example, the work that you did on envy, resentment versus compassion, nobody had been, you know, doing that. I, we, you know, people would theorize about the tall poppy syndrome, but nobody actually really broke it down. So I thought that was really eye-opening. Are there any other horizons out there that um, you want to tackle or uh, any other work that you have coming up um, that we should keep an eye out for and what's the best way to keep track of you? I mean, other than just have to turn on the television, she's usually giving interviews uh, on national cable. So we are very grateful to have her here, but what's, uh, what's in store for you? Uh, well, so we have some surveys that we're planning to conduct on immigration um, some more on kind of open speech political discourse where we're going to be focusing on tech companies and social mo or content moderation policies, which I'm really excited about. Um, and, and I'm also looking at um, a concept called authoritarianism. In the Ooh. academic literature, this um, has really focused on authoritarianism. This is not the kind from government. Um, which I think libertarians get really confused because when you say authoritarian, you think, well, who's, it's the government that can coerce you, not, you know, your fellow Americans. But um, this, this is a concept that originated in political science to, to basically describe a way of thinking, a style or personality, a way of thinking that's very dogmatic, inflexible, and rigid, and that wants to use kind of punitive measures to to kind of deal with political opponents. And the idea behind this, you know, that started back in the 1940s, um, political scientists wanted to know, oh my goodness, if what happened in Germany happened here, who would have, fo who would have followed Hitler? Um, and so they came up with this battery question to try to measure who would follow Hitler. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the concept is this fascinating concept, but unfortunately it, it hadn't been operationalized quite right. Um, so it got a little bit politicized in the process. But new research is coming out that is really being able, that has identified this really important concept. That this, this dogmatic, inflexible style of thinking, it's a style of thinking that assumes you could never be wrong ever about something else and that no one else has something of value to, to add to what you have to say. Um, that th this has a variant on the political left and the political right. That doesn't mean that everyone is like that. No, no, not, a, not at all. It just means that there is a, there's a subset of people on the political left and a subset on the political right that can be susceptible to this kind of dogmatic, rigid way of thinking that seeks to punish people who they disagree with. So you can see how that can be really useful today in being able to understand to what extent is this psychological motive behind a lot of what we're seeing where people can't just agree to disagree, but want to really punish their political adversaries, um, you know, economically punish them, you know, humiliate them. It's more than just saying, let's have a debate. Let's talk about why I think that I'm right or you're wrong and so forth. It's more about trying to marginalize people. And so I really want to study this concept, understand, you know, why is it on the rise? Pandemics, how can play a role here. We, we know that pandemics can increase authoritarianism, um, but also what can calm it down? What can get that, what can kind of push that button off? Um, so people start to feel less threatened where they start to feel like they can start engaging with each other without feeling such threat um, interacting with each other. 
That is really fascinating and um, sounds like we're on the same page because uh, the Atlas Society is organizing a future webinar uh, where Stephen Hicks and um, our senior scholar and our founder David Kelly are going to be talking about totalitarianism on, on the left and the right and trends. Um, and what you say really resonates with me as uh, someone who runs the Atlas Society because our organization was really was born out of uh, David Kelly's writing Truth and Toleration, just even within objectivism, that there can be uh, a, a, a rigidity among certain um, closed, they, they call themselves closed objectivists, to, uh, to just, you know, talk with libertarians, talk with uh, open objectivists, you know, hear different points of view. And I'm always um, amazed that like the most vitriolic comments and threats that I ever get, they're, they're not from like socialists. I mean, they're, they're from uh, people that, that I, I think I, I share, you know, like 99% of, of the values. So uh, I would be fascinated to see because I've you know, thought my own little theories about sort of psychological traits as well, you know, that maybe um, people who have insecure attachment or maybe have abandonment issues, that they then become so tied to a kind of a leader or a point of view, and they're just afraid to, to you know, loosen their grip for, for a second. So I, I don't know. Well, you as a, um, as a mother, uh, I would also be interested to know, and I think we're just about time to wrap up. <laughs> Emily, how have you been doing during this, you know, lockdown? And how has life been for you? Because you have some pretty young kids in the home. Um, yeah, things have been going as well as they can go, I suppose. We've been really fortunate thus far, but we've been careful. Um, you know, we're taking the pandemic seriously and using precautions and um unfortunately it's become such a divisive issue it's like we can't there can't be any issue that's not divisive right mm -hmm. <laughs> um but we've been holding up okay and um so i guess that's all we can that we can hope for right now well that's great we are taking it seriously as well for everybody who is coming out but we i think are cutting off ticket sales very very soon mm -hmm. at uh for the atlas society gala coming up in malibu on october 14th uh, we are taking plenty of precautions. My 80-year-old um, father and my 76-year-old mother are coming down, and uh, I would rather die of COVID myself than <laughs> have anything happen to, to them. So, uh, so we really appreciate all of the things that you have got going on, Emily, all of the tremendous uh, new fields you are um, exploring and uh, taking care of young kids in the home. It's just really wonderful. And I am deeply, deeply grateful that you took um, time out of your day to chat with us. And I hope we can do it again sometime. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care.